0: Hello, welcome to the Talking Michigan Transportation podcast. I'm Jeff Cranston. Joanne Muller is a veteran journalist based in Detroit. She writes now for Axios and is a co-author of the What's Next newsletter, well worth checking out if you don't already read it. She does some very good and interesting reporting on the auto industry and really all things mobility whether it's innovations with electric vehicles or automated vehicles or even drones, she's writing about it. She spoke with me about her reporting and what she's seeing in trends in the auto industry with EV sales and charging and everything else related to that. It's a very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So, Joanne Muller, good morning. I uh, was very eager to talk to you. I've read you for quite some time um, in Axios and you know, you're doing some very important reporting on what is still uh, probably the most important industry in Michigan. And when I say industry, I don't just mean the auto industry, I mean all things related to mobility. Um, So thanks for coming on the podcast and talk to me first about uh, your career trajectory and how one gets to be a co-author of the Axios What's Next Newsletter.
1: Well, thanks Jeff, uh, for having me. Um, so I've been at this covering the, uh, transportation industry, mostly autos, uh, for like 35 years or so. I was, uh, I first came to Detroit to work at the free press, um, back in, uh, whatever that the late eighties, I guess. Um, and, um, uh, You know, I I came in as a general assignment business reporter, but you don't have to be in Detroit very long to realize that if you want to be on page one, you should cover the auto industry. (laughs) So when an opening came up, I raised my hand and uh, that's how I became an automotive writer. I have no, you know, no particular. I'm I'm not a car guy uh, type of person. I'm you know, I find it very interesting as a business. Uh, and like I said, you know, the big stories and it has a giant impact on, uh, on the, the country and even the world. Um, so I worked at a few other places. I left Detroit for a little while after the newspaper strike. You might remember that, um, in the mid nineties, um, I worked at the Boston Globe, but then I came back to Detroit. I uh, worked for at Business Week for a few years, and then spent a very large chunk of my career working for Forbes uh, in Detroit. I was the Detroit bureau chief covering automotive uh, stuff, and then um, in 2018, um, Axios called, and uh, you know, this is a, a media company that was just a startup at the time. I didn't know a ton about them either, but they had a very unique way of of writing stories. And, um, you know, it was founded on this idea that media is broken and we need to we need to reinvent it. People are too busy to spend a lot of time reading stories. So uh, Axios specialty is called smart brevity, which is. Uh, you know, telling stories in a very succinct way, but with all the same reporting that it would have done before. And for me, it's, um, it's truly the hardest uh, type of writing I've ever done to write short but complete. And, uh, it's, uh, it's great. So, uh, I cover all things transportation. Now it's not just autos. I cover drones. I cover flying cars, EV uh, aviation airlines, all that stuff. But of course my, my heart is, uh, is covering autos and boy, there's never been a better time to do it than right now
0: that's for sure it's it's interesting that you mentioned the smart brevity i'm a huge fan of axios have been from the beginning i followed you know mike allen and, and jim vanderhay at the in their politico days and was intrigued from the start when they launched this this uh this startup and it reminds me when you talk about the most difficult kind of writing you know the old joke if i had had more time i would have written less yeah <laughs> so it's uh it's hard to edit yourself and it's hard to fit in that format but i i i think it's great i i feel like everything i consume i i get something that makes me smarter out of including um a lot of your work and it's funny you came back to michigan about the time i came back to michigan uh, to work the grand rapids press and the strike was going on then in detroit and we played in a a uh, softball tournament. I don't know if you remember, it was called the Michigan editorial softball society. It was, the name was kind of a joke, but we played in Traverse city every year, all the, the booth newspapers and the free press and the news. And I remember during the strike years that, uh, the teams suddenly from Detroit got very lean. So <laughs> right. that's a, uh, that's my memory of that period. So talk about when you say that. Uh, it's never been a better time to be covering the industry. What fuels your your interest in in this in mobility? Is it just uh, like like me, I guess maybe because nothing touches everybody
1: the way this does. Well, yeah, I mean that's a great way to put it. Uh, you know it, when you've covered an industry for thirty plus years, it can feel a little bit like Groundhog day. you know you go to the auto show and uh, they introduce the next version of some car you already know or whatever it's it's a little it's a little dull uh, uh, and can be like a grind, but really, uh, what's happening now is uh, you know everything is being reinvented, and so you have these new these new pe- powertrains uh you know electric and and fuel cell and hydrogen and you know all of this is brand new and then you have autonomy and you have connected cars and shared mobility and so like for the first time in a hundred years it's all being reinvented and everybody has to move like you say uh, and so everybody has an opinion. And so I feel like there is no limit to the amount of interest people have in writing stories about how we move around.
0: Yeah, you want to talk about everybody having an opinion. Talk to uh, any traffic safety engineer at MDOT or our social media coordinator. And uh, there there are a lot of experts out there. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> yes, um, they're in my inbox every day.
0: Yeah, I'll bet they are. <laughs> So um, let's first talk about electric vehicles and what you're learning about trends in the marketplace. I know you had a post uh, last week, uh, November 28th, headline, car dealers tell Bite customers aren't ready for electric cars. Uh, what did you learn from that reporting?
1: Well, uh, you know, so I, um, th- this is very interesting. A-, a dealer from Nebraska reached out to me and said, hey, you know, Uh, I just thought you might be interested that there's a whole bunch of us, uh, but across all 50 states, not just Midwestern dealers, that are saying, you know, to President Biden, we're really worried about how fast he's pushing on electric vehicles. And he's got uh, some proposed emissions regulations out there for, uh, I think it's uh, 20 27 to 2032, um, that would be so uh, strict, they would ramp up the emissions regulation so much that there's really no way to comply without making more EVs. And in fact, like two thirds of of their company's lineups would have to be electric. And they're saying, you know what, we are just not seeing the interest from consumers, they're just not ready to make that leap. And, uh, you know, they said we could sell anything. You know, we, we are salespeople. We sell whatever we, you know, we have that we can sell. But the problem is that these uh, these EVs are kind of sitting on the lot uh, long for a long time. And even with the discounts and the federal uh, tax incentives, they're still not moving. They have, they're have they sitting in inventory the longest. And so they just wanted to get uh, President Biden's attention because they said, you know, nobody's talking up for the consumer here. Uh, we hear them. We represent them. Um, now, in fairness, you know, car dealers also uh, are really good at selling gasoline cars and not so good at selling Electric vehicles, and you know it's a learning curve for everyone it's, and and that includes the dealers and so I think that it's just easier to sell a gasoline car because nobody thinks twice about it so uh this is what's happening and um you know th- there's I think there will be a lot of debate about these new emissions uh uh standards, the proposal nothing's cast in stone yet. Um, And, you know, if we have a different president uh, in 2024, then that could all be rolled back dramatically.
0: That's true. A change in administration could make a big difference. But, you know, you raise a good point about the the salespeople, too. It's one thing to train your technicians on what the technology is and how – Battery-powered car differs from an ICE vehicle, and they've got to learn all kinds of new things and, and ways to fix things. But I guess a salesperson has to learn how to answer the questions a consumer is going to ask about the car and how it runs.
1: Right? right. And yeah, I, and you know, I, I don't want to diss on car dealers, but frankly, there's just not enough education out there yet. And the 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 car companies, the manufacturers tell us, oh, we've got all this training and we're working really hard to get our dealers up to speed. But the fact of the matter is, if you as a consumer walk into a car dealership, there's a lot of questions you're gonna have and you probably won't get all of your answers uh from the salesperson on the floor. So that that's you know, that's a, a hurdle that Shouldn't be overlooked. This education thing is massive.
0: Well, range anxiety is a is a real concern, and I think that's why what what they're hearing, what those dealers are telling you, that people are coming in and saying, you know, I'm a little electric vehicle curious, but you know, I don't know that based on my commute or what I like to do that I'd have the charging infrastructure I need. That's in part why, as part of the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, there was a National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure, what we call NEVI. Uh, component to that Michigan gets $110 million. And the idea ultimately is to have, you know, some kind of charging infrastructure within 50 miles, uh, you know, every every 50 miles and in routes across Michigan and other states. Um, Do you feel like that'll start to make a difference in people's confidence?
1: Well, funny you should ask about that, because I am currently researching a story on that. And uh, it's been more than two years since that money was set aside, $5 billion for the NEVI program. Do you know how many uh, stations have opened so far? Uh,
0: I I know I can count them on one hand.
1: (laughs) Maybe on one fist, because there are none. Uh, The first one is going to open soon uh, in Ohio. Ohio's been one of the uh, the states that's been quickest out of the gate. I know in Michigan, we don't love Ohio very much, but they've done a good job. Um, but uh, this program, you know, like as with many government programs, there's a lot of hurdles and, and uh, steps to go through. And so will it make a difference? For sure, but it's not making a difference yet because these stations aren't there. Now, I will add also though that that's just one, um, you know, one portion of the charging infrastructure that we need. Private companies are doing a lot, um, both the the you know independent charging networks, but also the manufacturers are partnering with um, convenience stores and things like that. Like General Motors has a big partnership with. Uh, uh, Pilot Flying J uh, truck stops, and uh, EVgo, uh, one of the charging networks, is part of that. And so they've got several thousand stations they're going to put in. The other thing that's really interesting is that seven car makers have come together to form a um, uh, like a joint venture among them. They're going to create a new company, uh, and that is going to build 30,000. Uh, chargers over the next few years. So, you know, the promises are there, but you can't blame consumers for saying, "You know what, I'm just going to wait till I see those chargers before I I take the plunge." I mean, you talk about range anxiety, and I think it's a little bit more nuanced. It's more about charging anxiety. Like people for their everyday lives understand they can drive around and, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles, run all their errands, go to work, whatever, come back to their home, plug their car in, assuming they have a, a home charger. Now, obviously, that doesn't work for everyone, and that's a different a different uh, topic. But uh, th- that, that part is totally manageable. I have a charger in my own garage, and I can come home and charge the EV at night. It's no problem. Um, but It's those road trips that we make, and we don't make that many of them. Think about your own life, like you don't go on a road trip that often, uh, maybe a few times a year or something, Um, but you just want the confidence to know that if you did go on a road trip, there would be a charger every 50 miles. And I think that's more of a security blanket. That NEVI program is about sort of a security blanket to just make people feel like they are not going to be stranded somewhere.
0: Yeah, no, that, that that makes perfect sense. And I think when you talk about your home, part of that, solving that, that charging gap is being able to outfit your home. And you know, some of us are going to find out that if we want to do the level of charger that we'd really like for fast charging... We might not have the electric service in our current box, and that probably needs to be incentivized too, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there are some, uh, th- that's true, um, there are some available um, incentives here and there on home chargers. DTE <laughs> has a has a rebate program, you can get $500 back on a charger, but you still have to have the electrical work done. Um you know i i when i had mine installed i have a detached garage luckily the previous owner of my home had already upgraded the electrical uh, circuit so because otherwise i would have had to pay an electrician to come in and dig a trench from my home box out to the garage and that would have cost me several thousand Dollars, um, as it was, it cost me about 800 to just do some wiring and some uh, upgrade and to get the um, plug itself, um, and then the charger was another 600 bucks. So, you know, it it certainly adds up. Some car makers are throwing in a charger for free when you buy the car, which is kind of nice. It's like free uh, floor mats. Now you get a free free charger, but the electrical work is very individualized, and it depends on what your own setup is at your home.
0: Yeah, and I think that that goes to the the point of the triple bottom line that there are a lot of people that might want to do this uh, because they care about the planet and the carbon footprint, but that alone is going to make for total adoption it's going to it's going to require a a financial incentive i think for a lot of people so um and i'm not asking you to weigh in on that from a public policy standpoint (laughs) you you had some reporting uh just yesterday on how hybrids are doing now and people are willing to dip their toe you know they're they're ev curious but they're not quite there but you know hybrids which have been around for a long time are maybe Turning out to be the 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 bridge in between is that kind of how you'd conclude things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's um, hybrids are a little bit stress free in the sense that you can drive around on electricity when you're uh, in your in your neighborhood or at slow speeds or whatever. Um, but you're going to have that gas. Um, but it's always a very efficient uh, motor engine and you're, you know, so your gas mileage can be really fantastic. I had, get this, I had, uh, was driving the new Toyota Prius, which of course was the very first uh, hybrid that was successful here um, in the US. uh, And it's gone through a number of iterations. The new one is really quite quite beautiful, uh, surprisingly for a, for a Prius, but it's, it's really sharp looking car. Anyways, I drove, uh, it was a regular, uh, hybrid, not a plug-in hybrid. I was driving it up and down the mountains of Western North Carolina this fall. And I was getting a uh, fuel economy about 65 miles, uh, per gallon. I was very impressed by, um, you know just how efficient it was and of course when you're coming down the ho- the hill on the other side you're capturing energy because it has a lot of regenerative braking and that's one of the great things about EVs and hybrids is that you know they try to be efficient in the use of the energy anyway so hybrids are the the companies that are doing hybrids tend to be Toyota Honda Ford um that are are selling the most of them toyota especially uh, about half their lineup is uh, and same with honda actually about half their their uh, the vehicles that they offer hybrids are are um are actually hybrids the other half is gasoline so for instance a honda crv 50% are hybrid 50% are are gasoline general motors was all in on EVs and is facing a lot of questions now about whether they're going to bring out some hybrids to help sort of soften that transition because GM's problem is not just about demand, it's that they've had trouble getting their EVs produced. They've had some battery production problems and that has delayed their new EV lineup And so I think there's a lot of questions about GM. They say they're still fully committed to EVs, but I wonder if there will be some more hybrids in the meantime to bring the customer along uh, a little more gradually. That is certainly what Ford has said. They're gonna quadruple the number of hybrids they offer. And uh, I think that's very telling.
0: Stay with us. We'll have more on the other side of this important message.
1: The Michigan Department of Transportation
0: reminds you that when a vehicle collides with another vehicle, person, or other object, it is a crash, not an accident. By reducing human error, we can prevent crashes and rebuild Michigan roads safely. So would uh, hybrids, either plug-in or a traditional hybrid, meet that 2035 standard that Mary Barr is talking about?
1: No. I think uh, when she says we're going to be uh, uh, emission free, um, I think she still expects them to be virtually 100% electric by 2035. I I don't think that will ever happen, actually. My own opinion. I think that there will be be people who still want to drive a gasoline truck or you know for for different reasons. So I think there will be some internal combustion engines but i think they'll be like 10 or 20 percent of the lineup by 2035 um but i think the question is how do we get from here to there and you it's it's very hard to force people to buy a car they don't want uh, the price is high you know so you can offer some incentives and discounts and so forth but you still have anxiety and it's it's just a different experience you have to think. More nobody thinks about uh, filling up their car. They might say, "Oh, I'm I'm going somewhere. I'll, I'll stop on the way and fill up the tank." And five minutes later, I'm on my way. It doesn't interrupt your plans. But if you are having to plan charging now, you've got to think about when's my 30 or 40 minute window that I could do that. Um, if it's if you're at a, a you know a charger away from your home, and that is a important thing to think about. I I was, (laughs) I was just thinking about this today. I was late to my niece's baby shower because I forgot to charge the car and I couldn't get there unless I did. So, um, you know, you can really, that can have an impact on your life. No one likes to arrive late at a baby shower.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you, you raise a really good point that we have to plan our day better, plan our trips better. And, and you know, that's OK as long as you know that when you make the purchase, right, you you build that into your
1: Yeah, your, but your, the average person, I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think people are ready to do that yet. You know, I mean, I want a one for one transition. I'm all for saving the environment and protecting our climate, but I don't want to be inconvenienced about it. And so give me a one-for-one swap and I'll be happy to do it, you know, same price, same time, same convenience. Sure. But we're not there yet. And so the mainstream buyer, and and think about this too, people who only have families that only have one car, they don't have the luxury of taking a different car if if their EV won't make it. They have to be able to charge and have this worked into their life and it's a lot harder than I think policymakers or automakers are giving credit for I really think that consumer is forgotten here
0: you know just yesterday Rick Pluta a friend of mine who works for the Michigan Public Radio Network um, and he's got an EV and he made that exact point that he couldn't if they didn't have a two-car household he couldn't do it So you're absolutely right. Um, Let's talk about the other Vs, the AVs. You know, a few years back, Michigan and MDOT especially became national leaders in adopting legislation to uh, allow for operating automated vehicles. And I say automated as opposed to autonomous, because we're a long ways from totally autonomous. Uh, On the public roads, um, the former MDOT director, Kirk Steidel testified before congressional committees participated with NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and other federal agencies in all kinds of conversations about the safety imperative behind leveraging the technology, because we want to remove the cause of crashes, and the cause of crashes is human error, as much as some people might not want to admit that. So you had another post focusing on AVs and how could they gain the public trust. Could you talk about what you learned in that reporting?
1: Well, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the the big the big topic in the autonomous vehicle space right now is the problems that General Motors-owned Cruise is having, uh, companies based out in San Francisco, but uh, they had a, a kind of a pretty – Awful accident uh, recently that caused them to pull all of their vehicles off the road, even the the ones that are being tested by humans. And so there's this moment right now where we're kind of figuring out, wait a minute, what what is it going to take? Are, can these can these autonomous vehicles actually do what they say they can do? And and how will we get the public to trust them? And Frankly, Cruz has not done itself any favors here. There's been quite a bit of controversy about um, how uh, transparent they've been with um, with the regulators in California um, who have accused them of withholding some information or twisting the facts, et cetera. Uh, this is why GM has rushed in uh, and put some executives uh, in charge of crews and, and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to restore that relationship and that trust. But for the public, I think, you know, and regulators, there needs to be more transparency. And, um, the problem is that this, this, you know, there, nobody came and asked you or me whether we wanted these, uh, to share the road with these vehicles. Right. So we are sort of pawns in this public experiment uh certainly the lady who got hit by a human driven car and then run over by a cruise robo taxi um was was a uh, a victim of a technology that she you know she had nothing to do with she was not volunteering to be in this experiment so we've got to check all of this take a moment here and say all right what is it that we're trying to do and how Transparent should we be? And the fact of the matter is, these car developers, these robo taxi developers, have so much data that they collect every day from their vehicles that are out there, either driving, uh, providing service, as in the as in the case of Waymo, which is owned by Google, um, or uh, or or other companies that are still in the test phase. Um, and this data, you know, they, they learn a lot to, and they use that data to improve their technology, but they don't share that data with the uh, public uh, entities or, or the regulators. And so one of the things that a lot of people are saying is there needs to be more of that Uh, data sharing, it's not because you're trying to put blame on somebody, right? It's, It's that you're trying to make the technology better and figuring out where this technology can be trusted and maybe where it needs more work. So I'm very interested to see where the autonomous vehicle industry goes from here because one company's problems can reverberate for all in the industry, and, and we've seen that before. Uh, you may recall there was a, uh, a pedestrian who was struck and killed by an Uber test driving vehicle in Phoenix back in 2018. And every company ended up taking their vehicles off the road for more than a year while they kind of reassessed you know, their own technology as well as some of the rules around it. So I think this is a similar moment although nobody else is taking their cars off the road other than Cruise.
0: Well, and that Uh, says something right there about how we've evolved in our thinking, you know, and and not overreacting, right?
1: Right, right. And, you know, I think that Cruise's technology is really quite good. I want to be clear about that. They've accomplished some amazing things, and they have been neck and neck with Waymo. But recently, like over the summer, all of a sudden, Waymo started, Cruise started accelerating its rollout very quickly to a whole bunch of cities, and they, uh, and but at the same time, they started having run-ins with fire trucks and first responders. There was a famous story where a cruise vehicle got stuck in wet cement because it wandered into a construction zone. I mean, these are things that should not be happening, and it, and it tells you, okay, it's time to slow down. So we'll see what else happens. I
0: think that's true. And I think it's also important to have some sense of history, which increasingly it seems like, and I know this sounds curmudgeonly, but it seems like we in the U.S. don't seem to have any more. I mean, think about the earliest days of the combustible engine, you know, the horseless carriage and what was going on then and trying to interact with people on bikes and walkers and people were getting mowed down. But it didn't stop the industry from moving forward because there was going to be uh, an imperative. Right. And, you know, think about the idea at the time that my horses are much more reliable than that car. So I'm going to stick with my horses. Right. <laughs> I mean, all yeah. those things had to evolve.
1: Yeah. And I, I think we'll, we will. I, You know, um, Cruz is suggesting they're waiting for some reports from, you know, internal investigations and stuff like that to to make any announcements. But they're they're indicating that they're going to come back in just one city and really just nail it first, you know, make sure that they can re uh, earn the trust of the community and the regulators and so forth. And then only then will they begin to expand again. So I don't know, there's still a lot of work happening right here in Michigan, you know, Um, over there at Michigan Central, Ford, uh, you know, they're, they're continuing to work. Now, Ford's approach now is let's start with assisted driving technology and move up from there. They Ford pulled out of full autonomy. They had an investment in a company called Argo and they, um, they just decided that was not where they wanted to put their money because they felt like it's still a long ways away and we could still get a ton of safety benefits just from using more assisted driving technology. And I think that is a very good lesson um, that, you know, driving is getting safer if we trust the, the the systems that are on our cars and don't shut them off, you know, like it, your lane keeping assist and things like that can be really, really helpful. And, and uh, automatic is emergency braking. Those kinds of things can really save lives. And the more they get into vehicles, I think we'll see those, um, those uh, fatality numbers start to drop
0: yeah that's uh i've heard from a number of people that maybe were a little suspect at first because they had adaptive cruise control for instance and now they say they, they couldn't live without it and i know myself when because i've had it for a while and when i drive a car that doesn't you know it's uh you, you miss it so absolutely yeah. i
1: agree yeah yeah
0: well joanne thank you so much for taking time to talk about all these things uh, i think um I'll definitely link in the show notes to your post about the hybrids because I think you're right, a lot of people will be surprised if they haven't seen an image of the the new Prius yet. It is pretty streamlined and and very cool. So thank you for for everything you've shared with us and uh, we'll talk some some more later because I, I know that innovations are gonna continue to happen in this industry.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you.
0: I'd like to thank you once more for tuning in to Talking Michigan Transportation. You can find show notes and more on Apple Podcasts or Buzzsprout. I also want to acknowledge the talented people who help make this a reality each week, starting with Randy Debler, who skillfully edits the audio, Jesse Ball, who proofs the content, Courtney Bates, who posts the podcast to various platforms, and Jackie Salinas, who transcribes the audio to make it accessible to all.